Chapter 51 Cinder lumbered to the spot where Audrey had been groveling moments ago. She planted her feet and readied herself with an exhale that was meant to be steadying, though it was impossible to ignore the fluttering of her pulse or the list of 30 different hormones her retina display told her were flooding her system. Her brain was acutely aware of her fear. Two guards flanked her on either side. Our second prisoner, Lynn Cinder, said Amory, pacing in front of her, has been charged with the following crimes, unlawful emigration to Earth, rebelliousness, assisting a traitor to the crown, conspiring against the crown, kidnapping, meddling in intergalactic affairs, obstruction of justice, theft, evading arrest, and royal treason. The punishment for these crimes is immediate death by her own no, said Queen Lavanna, smiling. It was clear she'd thought a lot about this moment. It has proven to be too difficult to manipulate her, so an exception is to be made. Her punishment shall be immediate death by... Oh, what shall it be? Poison? Drowning? Burning? Her eyes narrowed with the last word, and Cinder had a stark memory, a nightmare she dreamed a hundred times. A bed of red-hot coals charring her skin, her hand and leg crumbling into ash. Dismemberment, a man yelled, starting with those horrendous appendages. His suggestion was met with a roar of approval from the crowd. Lavana allowed the tittering for a moment before she raised a hand for silence. A rather vile suggestion for a rather vile girl. I'll allow it. Cheers exploded through the room. Kai leaped to his feet. Are you savages? Lavana ignored him. Another idea comes to mind. Perhaps the honor of enacting this punishment should be none other than my newest, most loyal subject. I do believe she is quite eager to please. Lavana curled her fingers. Lynn Audrey, won't you step forward again? Audrey looked about ready to faint. She took two uncertain steps forward. Here is an opportunity to prove that you are loyal to me, your future empress, and that you despise your once adopted daughter as much as she deserves. Audrey gulped. She was sweating. You, you want me to dismember her, Mrs. Lynn? I suppose you'll need a weapon. What would you like? I'll have it brought up. Uh, a hatchet, perhaps, or an axe? A knife seems like it could get messy, but a nice sharp axe. Stop this, said Kai. It's revolting. Lavana leaned back in her chair. I am beginning to think you do not appreciate your wedding gift, my dear. You are free to leave if these proceedings unsettle you. I won't let you do this, he hissed between his teeth, his face flushed. Lavana shrugged at Kai. You can't stop me. And you won't stop the coronation. There is far too much at stake to risk it all for some girl, some cyborg. I know you'll agree. Kai's knuckles whitened, and Cinder imagined him striking the queen, or attempting some equally stupid thing. Wire cutters, she said, 
the tone of voice, and the random declaration, enough to draw everyone's attention back to her. Kai's brow furrowed, but only in that moment between confusion and when her manipulation hit. She felt for his energy, crackling and heated, and did her best to soothe it. It's all right, she said, relieved to see his muscles relax. He would probably be angry about this later. Snarling, Lavana shoved away the tray of appetizers and stood, knocking the servant onto his side. He scrambled away. Stop manipulating my husband. Cinder laughed, her gaze slipped back to the queen. Don't be a hypocrite. You manipulate him all the time. He is mine, my husband, my king. Your prisoner, your pet, your trophy? Cinder took a step forward, and a guard was there, a hand on her shoulder holding her back, while another half-dozen guards jumped to attention. Cinder sniffed. It was nice to know she could make Lavana jumpy, even with her hands bound. It must be so rewarding to know that every relationship you have is based on a lie. Lavana's lip curled, and for a moment, a scrambled, inconsistent picture cascaded over Cinder's retina display. Something was wrong with the left side of Lavana's face. One half-shut eyelid, strange ridges along her cheek. Cinder blinked rapidly, wondering if Lavana's anger was causing her to lose control of the glamour. Or if this was her own optobionics trying to make sense of the anomaly before them. She flinched at the overload of visual data, trying to disguise her loss of focus. The guards started to relax as their queen did. You are the lie, said Lavana, her voice level. You are a fraud. Cinder's attention was caught on the queen's mouth, usually so perfect and crimson red. But something was off now, a weird downward curl to one side that didn't fit the queen's usual apathetic smile. There was damage there beneath the glamour, scarring of some sort, maybe even paralysis. Cinder stared, her pulse thundering through her head. An idea, a hope, began to build in the back of her thoughts. Believe me, I've been called worse, she said, schooling her expression back into nonchalance, though she could tell it was too late. Lavana had seen the change in her, or perhaps felt it. The queen was instantly guarded again, suspicious, Lavana could guard herself all she wanted. She could glamour everyone in this room, everyone in her kingdom. But she couldn't fool Cinder. Or rather, she couldn't fool Cinder's internal computer. She stopped fighting the onslaught of data being pieced together by her brain-machine interface. The glamour was a biological construct. Using a person's natural bioelectricity to create tiny electric pulses in the brain to change what they saw and thought and felt and did. But the cyborg part of Cinder's brain couldn't be influenced by bioelectricity. It was all machine, all data and programming and math and logic. When faced with a lunar glamour or when a lunar tried to manipulate her, the two parts of her brain went to war, trying to figure out which side should be dominant. This time, she let the cyborg side win. The chaotic jumble of information returned full force, pieces scrambling to write themselves, like watching a puzzle made up of pixels and binary code work itself out in her head. 
like bringing a camera into focus, every glamour in the room was replaced with truth. The purring snow leopard shawl was nothing more than a faux fur drape. The fishbowl shoes were nothing more than clear acrylic. Lavana was indeed wearing an elaborate red gown, but there were places where it clung too tight or draped too loose, and the skin revealed on her left arm was scar tissue, not unlike cinder skin around her prostheses. As the world righted itself and the patchwork reality stopped scrambling and flipping and seeming together, Cinder commanded her brain to start recording. I am guilty of the crimes you listed, she said. Kidnapping and conspiracy and all the rest of it. But these are nothing compared to the crime you committed 13 years ago. If there is anyone in this room who is guilty of royal treason, it is the woman sitting on that throne, she fixed her eyes on Lavana. My throne. The crowd stirred and Lavana smirked, feigning indifference though her hands were shaking, and the details of them were flicking between lithe, pale fingers and a pinky that was shriveled, and the constant changes were making it hard for Cinder to focus. You are nothing but a criminal, said Lavana, her voice writhing, and you will be executed for your crimes. Cinder flexed her tongue, testing it, and raised her voice. I am Princess Selene, Lavana leaned forward. You are an imposter, and I am ready to claim what's mine. People of Artemisia, this is your chance. Renounce Lavana as your queen and swear fealty to me. Or I swear that when I wear that crown, every person in this room will be punished for their betrayal. That is enough. Kill her. At first, the guards did not move, and the brief hesitation was all the information Cinder needed. Lavana, in her hysteria, had lost her mental grip on her protectors. Before the thaumaturges could realize it had happened, Cinder slipped into their minds. Twelve royal guards, twelve men who were, as Jason had once told her, like brainless mannequins, puppets for the queen to shuffle around as it pleased her. Twelve armed protectors, ready to obey her every whim. Cinder's retina display flared with information. Her accelerated heart rate, the offset of bioelectrical manipulation, the adrenaline flooding her veins. Time slowed. Her brain synapses fired faster than she could recognize them, information being noted and translated and stored away before she could interpret it. Seven thaumaturges, two in black, stood behind the queen, the four who had taken Cinder from her cell stood near the doors, and Amory. The nearest guard stood 0.8 meters to her left. Six wolf soldiers, the nearest 3.1 meters away, the farthest 6.4 meters. Forty-five lunars in the audience, Kai and his advisor, and five earthen leaders along with 17 additional representatives from the Union. Thirty-four servants, kneeling like statues, trying to sneak glances at the girl who claimed to be their queen. Twelve guards with twelve guns and twelve knives, all belonging to her. Threats were weighed, balanced, measured. Dangers turned into data, running through a mental calculator. The stiletto knife emerged from the tip of Cinder's finger. Every earthen dived off their seats to take cover, including Kai. Only afterwards did she realize she'd force them to do it. Then she used 11 of the 12 guards to open fire. 
Eleven guns went off, all aiming for one of the six wolf mutants, while the guard closest to Cinder drew his knife and hacked through the binds around her wrists. In her hurry, she felt the blade clang against her metal palm. Her hands burst free, her body and mind were in harmony, just as Wolf had taught her. Her brain ticked down the list of threats. The wolf soldiers lunged for the guards as another round of bullets exploded around them. The nearest servant leaped to his feet and charged at Cinder as if to tackle her. Cinder grabbed him and shoved him toward a thaumaturge. They collided with a series of grunts, collapsing to the floor. Kill her, Lavana's voice cracked. More gunshots throbbed against Cinder's eardrums. Bodies scrambled and chairs screeched, and Cinder lost track of where the guards were, and if any wolf soldiers had fallen. And two aristocrats were running at her from either side, and she urged the guards to focus on the thaumaturges. The thaumaturges, now. There was another volley of bullets, and the aristocrats cried out and crumpled and tried to scurry out of the fray as soon as they were released. A wolf soldier grabbed Cinder from behind. Pain ripped through her shoulder, his canine teeth tearing at her flesh. She screamed. Hot blood dripped down her arm, lifting her cyborg hand. She stabbed wildly, and the blade connected with flesh. The soldier released her with a roar, and she spun, kicking him away. Shaking from head to toe, she sought to reclaim the minds of the guards, but in that second of distraction, the room had been emptied of the guards' bioelectric waves. Ten of them were dead, ripped to shreds by the soldiers who had turned on them with surprising ferocity, despite the bullet holes puncturing their chests and stomachs. In the chaos, Cinder found Kai, who was staring at her, jaw hanging open. She tore her eyes away and found the queen, still screaming and trying to cast around her orders, but the two remaining guards no longer belonged to her, and the wolves did not care who they were attacking, and the thaumaturges dead. All dead. Cinder had killed them all. Except maybe Amory, who she couldn't find in the chaos. She wanted him, but she wanted someone else more. Clear-headed, Cinder bent down to retrieve a gun from one of the fallen guards. She lifted her arm, gritting her teeth against the searing pain in her shoulder, and aimed for the spot between the queen's eyes. For a split second, Lavana looked terrified. Then, Kai was between them, face slack from manipulation. Sweat dripped into Cinder's eyes, blurring the world around her. The heavy doors crashed open, followed by the sound of boots pounding in the hallway. Reinforcements had arrived. Heartened, Lavana sent every remaining person in the room charging at Cinder. The Earthens and the aristocrats may not have weapons but there were a lot of hands and a lot of nails and a lot of teeth. The new guards would be close behind. What had her sentence been? Death by dismemberment? Cinder lowered the gun, pivoted, and ran, past the puppet lunars in their glittering clothes, past the mindless servants and the dead thaumaturges and the spatters of blood and the fallen chairs and Pearl and Audrey cowering in a corner. She sprinted toward the only escape, the wide-open balcony hanging above the water. The pain in her shoulder throbbed, and she used the reminder to run faster, her feet pounding against the hard marble. She heard gunshots, but she had already jumped. The black sky opened up before her, and she fell. Chapter 52 Kai was rooted to the ground, a statue surrounded by turmoil. Lavana was screaming. No, screeching. 
Her normally melodic voice turned harsh and unbearable. She was yelling orders, find her, bring her back, kill her, but no one was listening. There was no one left to listen. Nearly all of the guards were dead. The thaumaturges, dead. The wolf soldiers, dead. A handful of servant and aristocrat bodies littered the floor as well, tossed among the blood and broken furniture. The victims of hungry, hybrid soldiers let loose on an unsuspecting, unarmed crowd. Beside him, Lavana ripped the jeweled necklace off some lunar woman and threw it at a servant girl who was cowering on the floor, splattered with blood. You, bring me more guards. I want every guard and thaumaturge in the palace in this room at once. And you, clean up this mess. What are you all standing there for? The servants dispersed, half crawling, half slipping toward the hidden exits in the walls. Awareness began to burrow its way through the shock, and Kai glanced around, spotting a group of earthen leaders clustered in a corner. Torin was among them. He looked stricken. His suit was disheveled. Are you hurt? Kai asked. No, sir. Torn made his way to Kai, gripping the backs of chairs to keep from slipping on the bloody floor. Are you? Kai shook his head. The earthens, all accounted for. No one seems to be injured. Kai tried to swallow, but his throat was too dry and the saliva got stuck until he tried a second time. He spotted Amory emerging from one of the servants' alcoves, the only surviving thaumaturge from the trials, though more had since arrived. The members of the court, who hadn't yet run from the throne room, were plastered to the back walls, sobbing hysterically or jabbering to one another as they tried to relive the traumatic event, piecing together their stories. Who had seen what, and which guard had shot whom, and did that girl really believe she was the lost princess? Cinder, half-starved and surrounded by enemies, had caused so much destruction in so little time right in front of the queen. It was unnatural, impossible, sort of amazing. A laugh burbled up Kai's throat, trembling uncontrolled in his diaphragm. His emotions were shredded with fear and panic and awe. Hysteria hit him like a punch to the gut. He pressed a hand over his mouth as the crazed laughter spilled out, turning fast into panicked breaths. Torin pressed a hand between his shoulder blades. Majesty. Torin. Kai stammered, struggling to breathe. Do you think she's all right? Though Torin looked doubtful, he answered, she has shown herself to be quite resilient. Kai started to make his way across the throne room, his wedding shoes leaving prints in the sticky blood. Reaching the edge, he peered down into the water. He had not been able to tell from his seat how far the drop was. Four stories, at least. His stomach flipped. He couldn't see to the opposite shore. In fact, the lake stretched out so far, it seemed to run right into the dome's wall. Though the air was still, the water was choppy and black as ink. He searched and searched for something to indicate a body, a girl, a sheen of a metal limb. But there was no sign of her. He shivered. Could Cinder swim? Was her body even designed for swimming? He knew she'd taken showers aboard the Rampion, but to be fully submerged. Could she have survived? Kai jumped. Lavana stood a few feet away with her arms crossed and nostrils flared. Kai moved away from her, spurred by the irrational fear that she was about to push him off the ledge. 
As soon as he backed up, though, he remembered she could still make him jump. I don't know, he said. To provoke her, he added, that was some marvelous entertainment, by the way. I had high expectations, and you did not disappoint. She snarled, and he was glad he'd backed away. Amory, she snapped, have the lake combed by morning. I want the cyborg's heart served to me on a silver platter. Amory bowed. It will be done, your majesty. He nodded toward the group of thaumaturges that had arrived after all the action, who were all trying to look like the destruction of the throne room wasn't as shocking as it was. Four of them departed. I'm afraid I must inform your majesty that there has been a disturb- Clearly there is a disturbance, Lavana bellowed. She jutted her red fingernail toward the lake. You think I can't see that? Amory pressed his lips. Of course, my queen, but there is something else. Her gaze burned. What else could there be? As you know, the trial and execution tonight was live broadcast to all sectors. It would appear that as a result of the cyborg's escape, the people are, they are rioting. In several sectors, it seems. SB1 is the nearest that our security footage indicates, and there also appears to be a sizable crowd of civilians beginning to march toward Artemisia from as far away as AT6. She did not escape. Lavana's voice sounded thin and taut, about to splinter. Kai took another step away from her. She is dead. Tell them she is dead. She could not have survived the fall. And find her. Find her. Yes, my queen. We will assemble a broadcast informing the people of Lynn Cinder's death immediately. But we cannot guarantee that this alone will subdue the riots. Enough! Lavana shoved the thaumaturge out of her way and stormed toward her throne, planting herself before it. Barricade the maglev tunnels in and out of Artemisia. Shut down the ports. No one is to enter or leave this dome until that cyborg has been found and the civilians of Luna have repented for their actions. If anyone tries to get through the barricades, shoot them. Wait, said Europe's Prime Minister Bromstad, stalking toward Lavana. The throne room had mostly emptied of lunar aristocrats, leaving only the servants who were trying to rid the room of bodies, and the earthens who were trying not to look as shaken as they were. You can't lock down the ports. You invited us to a wedding, not a war zone. My cabinet and I are leaving tonight. Lavana raised an eyebrow, and that simple, elegant gesture made every hair on Kai's neck stand on edge. She approached the prime minister, and though Bromstad held his ground, Kai could see him regretting his words. Behind him, the other leaders drew closer together. You want to leave tonight? said Lavana, the purr having returned to her inflections. Well then, allow me to help you with that. A nearby servant, who had been attempting invisibility, stopped scrubbing the floor and instead picked up a stray serving fork. On her knees, her head bowed, the servant handed the fork to Prime Minister Bromstad. The second his hand closed around the fork's handle, fear surged through his face. Not just fear, but a fear in knowing that he was now holding a weapon, and Lavana could make him do anything, anything that she wanted to. Stop, said Kai, grabbing Lavana's elbow. She sneered at him. I will not make you my empress if you attack a leader of an allied country. 
Let him go. Let them all go. There's been enough bloodshed for one day. Lavana's eyes burned like coals, and there was a moment in which Kai thought she might kill them all and simply take Earth with her army. Her pathway cleared with all the world's leaders gone. He knew the thought had crossed her mind. But there were a lot of people on Earth, far more than on Luna. She could not control them all. A rebellion on Earth would be much more difficult to secure if she tried to take it by force. The fork clattered to the floor, and the air left Bromstad in a rush. She will not save you, Lavana hissed. I know you think she's alive and that this little rebellion of hers will succeed, but it won't. Soon I will be empress and she will be dead, if she isn't already. Schooling her features, she slicked her hands down the front of her dress, like she could smooth out the disaster of the past hour. I do not know that I will see you again, dear husband, until we stand together for our coronations. I'm afraid the sight of you is making me ill. Thanks to a warning look from Torin, Kai managed to withhold commentary on this unexpected disappointment. With a snap of her fingers, Lavana ordered one of the servants to have a bath drawn in her chambers, and then she was gone, blood clinging to the hem of her gown as she swept from the throne room. Kai exhaled, dizzy from it all. The queen's sudden absence, the iron tang of blood mixed with sharp cleaning chemicals, and the lingering aroma of braised beef. The way his ears still echoed with gunfire, and how he would never forget the image of Cinder launching herself off that ledge. Your majesty, said a shriveled, frightened voice. Turning, he saw Lynn, Audrey, and Pearl crouched in a corner, Tears and dirt streaked their faces. Might we? Audrey gulped, and he could see the fluttering rise and fall of her chest as she tried to gather herself. Might it be possible for you to... to send my daughter and me home? She sniffed, and brand new tears pooled in her eyes. Scrunching up her face, she let her shoulders slump, her body barely supported in the corner of the room. I'm ready. I want to go home now. Please. Kai clenched his jaw, pitying the woman almost as much as he despised her. I'm sorry, he said. But it doesn't look like anyone is leaving until this is over. Chapter 53 The water hit her like concrete. The force pounded through her body. Every limb vibrated, first with the hard slap of the water, then from its icy cold. It swallowed her down. She was still reeling from the hit as the air left her lungs in a burst of froth and bubbles. Already her chest was burning, her body rolled over like a buoy, her heavy left leg dragging her down. A red warning light filled up the darkness. Liquid immersion detected, shutting down power supply in three that was as far as the countdown got. Blackness pulled at the back of Cinder's brain, as if a switch had been turned off. Dizziness rocked her. She forced her eyes open and looked toward the surface, only able to orient herself because she could feel her leg pulling her down. Down. White sparks were creeping into the corners of her vision. Her lungs tightened, begging to contract. Slippery weeds reached up to grasp her, sliming her right calf where her pants had bunched around her knee. 
Willing herself to stay conscious, Cinder aimed her finger's flashlight into the blackness at her feet and tried to turn it on, but nothing happened. With just enough light from the palace, filtering through the muck and water, Cinder thought she detected a series of pale bones caught among the grasses. Her metal foot sank into a rib cage. She jolted, surprise clearing her thoughts as the bones crushed beneath her. Gritting her teeth, Cinder used every ounce of energy left to push herself off the lake bottom, struggling back toward the surface. Her left leg and hand weren't responding to her controls. They had become nothing but dead weights at the end of her limbs, and her shoulder screamed where the mutant soldier had dug his teeth into her flesh. It took every ounce of remaining energy to claw her way upward. Her diaphragm twitched. Overhead, the glare on the surface grew brighter, lights flickering like a mirage over the surface. She felt the strength draining out of her, her waterlogged leg trying to drag her back down. She burst through the surface with a sputter, sucking huge mouthfuls of air into her lungs. She managed to tread water for one desperate moment before she was pulled down again. Her muscles burned as she kicked, bobbing back up at the surface, straining to keep her head above the water. As the flashes in her vision began to recede, Cinder swiped the water from her eyes. The palace towered above her, ominous and oppressive despite its beauty, stretching along either side of the lake. Without artificial daylight brightening the dome, she could see the spread of the Milky Way beyond the glass, mesmerizing. On the balcony far above her, Cinder caught shadows moving. Then, a wave crashed into her and she was underwater again, her body battered against the current. She lost her sense of direction, up or down. Panic burst again in her head, her arm flailing for control against the buffeting waves. Her shoulder throbbed. Only when she felt herself sinking did she reorient herself and flounder back to the surface. She tried to swim away from the palace, toward the center of the lake, though there was no end in sight. She hadn't gone far before her muscles started to burn, and every joint on the left side of her body was screaming at the useless weights of her prosthetic limbs. Her lungs felt scratched raw, but she had to survive. She couldn't stop fighting, couldn't stop trying. Kai was still up there. All her friends were on Luna somewhere, needing her, and the people of the outer sectors were counting on her. And she had to keep pushing, pushing. Holding her breath, Cinder ducked beneath the surface and tugged off her boots, letting them sink. It wasn't much, but she felt lightened enough to scramble against her body's lopsided weight, propelling herself through the waves. The lake seemed never-ending, but every time she glanced back and saw how far the lunar palace had receded into the distance, Cinder felt a new surge of strength. The shore was lit now by mansions and tiny boat docks, the far side of the lake had disappeared over the horizon. She rolled onto her back, panting. Her leg was on fire, her arms made of rubber, the wound in her shoulder like an ice pick jammed into her flesh. She couldn't go any farther. It occurred to her as a wave crashed over her body and she almost didn't bother to reach for the surface that she didn't know if she'd reserved enough energy to make it to the shore. What if they were waiting for her there? She couldn't fight, couldn't manipulate. She was done, a half-dead, beaten girl. Cinder's head collided with something solid. She gasped, her loss of propulsion sending her beneath the surface again. 
She lashed out with her foot, forcing herself back up and spat the water from her mouth. Her hands slapped against the hard, slick surface she'd run into. The dome. She'd reached the edge of Artemisia. The enormous curved wall acted like a dam, holding the lake back, while on the other side of the glass, the crater continued for miles in each direction, dry and pocked and disturbingly, horrifyingly deep. Bobbing against the glass, Cinder stared at the bottom of the crater hundreds of feet below. She felt like a fish in a fishbowl, trapped. She turned toward the shore but couldn't make herself move. She was shivering. Her stomach was hollow. Her weighted leg pulled her down again, and it took the strength of a thousand wolf soldiers for her to climb back to the surface. Water flooded her mouth, and she spat as soon as her head broke through the waves. But it was useless. She couldn't. Dizziness rocked over her. Her arms flopped against the water. Her right leg gave out first, too tired for one more kick. Cinder gasped, and she was dragged down, one hand sliding down the slimy glass wall. There was a strange release as blackness engulfed her, a pride in knowing that when they combed the lake, they would find her body way out here, and they would know how hard she had fought. Her body went limp, a wave pushed her back, and she struck the wall, but hardly felt it. Then, something was gripping her, dragging her upward. Too weak to fight, Cinder let herself be carried. Her head broke into the air, and her lungs expanded. She coughed, arms wrapped around her. A body pressed her against the wall. Cinder drooped forward, settling her head against a shoulder. Cinder, a man's voice, strained and vibrating through her chest. Stop slacking off, would you? He adjusted her in his arms, shifting her weight to cradle her in one elbow. Cinder! She turned her bleary eyes up, catching glimpses of his chin and profile and the wet hair plastered to his brow. She must have been delirious. Thorn? The word stuck in her throat. That's captain to you, he gritted his teeth, straining to pull them toward the shore. Ace says you're heavy. Oh, there you are. How nice of you to help out. Your mouth uses up a lot of energy, someone growled. Jason? Roll her onto her back so her body's not fighting against. His words turned into a sharp yell as Cinder's body slipped out of Thorn's hold, sinking into the comforting lull of the waves. Chapter 54 Cress and Iko stood gripping each other on the lake shore, watching Thorn and Jason dive beneath the surface. Cress was shivering, more from fear than cold. And while Iko's body didn't give off natural heat like a human being, there was a comfort that came from her solidarity. They waited, but there was no sign of Thorn or Jason or Cinder. They'd been underwater for a long time. Too long. Cress didn't realize she was holding her breath until her lungs screamed. She gasped, the sensation more painful, because she knew her companions would have been holding their breath for that long, too. Iko squeezed her hand. Why haven't they- She took a step forward, but paused. Iko's body wasn't made for swimming, and Cress had never been in a body of water larger than a bathtub. 
They were useless. Cress pressed a shaky hand over her mouth, ignoring the hot tears on her face. It had been far too long. There, Iko cried, pointing. Two, no, three heads appeared over the dark, chopping waves. Iko took another step. She's alive, isn't she? She, she doesn't seem to be moving. Do you see her moving? I'm sure she's alive. I'm sure they're all fine. She glanced at Iko, but couldn't bring herself to ask the question she knew they'd all been thinking. The live broadcast of the wedding feast had shown them everything. The trial, the massacre, Cinder jumping from the ledge and plunging toward the lake below. Could Cinder swim? Everyone had thought it, but no one had asked. Together, the four of them had sneaked through the city, grateful that the few lunars they saw were too busy celebrating the queen's marriage to pay them any attention. Jason had led the way, familiar with the city and the patterns of the lake, knowing where the bodies that fell into it from the throne room occasionally surfaced. There had been no hesitation between them. They all knew they had to find Cinder while Lavana was reeling from the attack. When they had caught sight of Cinder's dark form among the waves, there was a resounding gasp of joy and relief from the whole group. But they still had no idea what state Cinder would be in. Was she alive? Was she injured? Could she swim? When the trio in the water was close enough, Cress let go of Iko and waded out to join them. Together, they pulled Cinder's body ashore, laying her down on the white sand. Is she alive? Iko asked, half hysterical. Is she breathing? Let's get her to that boathouse, Jason said. We can't stay out here. Thorn, Jason, and Iko shared the job of carrying Cinder's limp body while Cress ran ahead to hold the doors. Three rowboats were stacked on brackets against the two side walls, with a fourth laid out in the middle and covered with a tarp. She cleared a mess of oars and fishing equipment from the tarp, making a space for them to lay out Cinder's body. But Jason laid her on the hard floor instead. Iko closed the doors, shrouding the room in darkness. Cress scrambled to switch on her port screen for its ghostly blue light. Jason didn't bother to check for breath or a pulse before he leaned over Cinder and locked his hands together on top of her chest. His eyes hardened as he started to pump down on her sternum with quick, forceful movements. Cress winced at the sound of popping cartilage. Do you know what you're doing? said Thorne, crouched on Cinder's other side. He coughed and wiped his mouth with his arm. Do you need help? We learned this in boot camp. I remember, sort of. I know what I'm doing, said Jason. And he did seem to know, as he tilted Cinder's head back and formed a seal over her mouth with his own. Thorne didn't look comforted, but he didn't argue. Kneeling at Cinder's feet, Cress watched in silence as Jason started the compressions again. She remembered net dramas where the heroine was revived by the hero with mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. It had seemed so romantic. Cress had even had fantasies about drowning, dreams in which the press of a man's lips could breathe life back into her lifeless form. The dramas had lied. There was a violence to this they hadn't shown. She grimaced as Jason's hands flattened against Cinder's sternum for a third time, imagining she could feel the bruises on her own chest. She felt suspended in time. Thorn took up Sentinel by the doorway, peering out through a small, filthy window to keep watch. 
Aiko wrapped her arms around her body and looked about ready to dissolve into impossible tears. Cress was about to take Aiko's hand again when Cinder jerked. She started to gag. Jason eased her head over to the side, and the water burbled out of her mouth, though not as much as Cress expected. Jason held Cinder in place, keeping her airway clear, until she had stopped hacking. She was breathing again, weak and shaky, but breathing. Cinder opened her eyes, and Jason eased her into a sitting position. Her right arm flopped. Her hand found Jason's arm and squeezed. She spat a few more times. Good timing, she croaked. Water was glistening on her lips and chin until Aiko reached forward and wiped it away with her sleeve. Cinder looked at her and her eyes lightened, though her eyelids still drooped with exhaustion. Aiko? I thought... With a groan, she fell onto her back. Aiko squealed and made to collapse onto Cinder, but reconsidered. Instead, she scurried around Jason so she could lift Cinder's shoulders and cradled her head in her lap. Smiling wearily, Cinder reached up to pet Aiko's braids. Her cyborg hand was missing one of its fingers. We can't stay here, said Jason, rubbing water droplets from his cropped hair. They'll start the search closer to the palace, but it won't be long before they barricade the whole lake. We need to find some place for her to recover. Any ideas? asked Thorne. We're not exactly in friendly territory. I need medical supplies, said Cinder, her eyes shut. A soldier bit me. Should clean the wound before it's infected. She sighed, too exhausted to go on. I wouldn't mind a warm meal and a clothes dryer so long as we're making demands, said Thorne. Leaning forward, he stripped off his soaking wet shirt. Cress's eyes widened, glued to him as he wrung the lake out of the shirt, water splattering on the concrete. Jason said something, but she didn't catch what. Thorne pulled his shirt on again, a little more dry and wrinkled now, and Cress was able to breathe again. That might work, said Thorne, nodding at Cinder. Think you can make it? No, said Cinder. I can't walk. It's not far, said Jason. I thought you were supposed to be tough. Cinder scowled up at him. I can't walk. The water did something to my interface. She paused, wheezed. My leg and hand aren't functioning. Lost net access, too. Four pairs of eyes shifted to the glistening metal foot. Cress was not in the habit of thinking of Cinder as cyborg, as something other, as someone who could just stop functioning. Fine, said Jason, turning to Thorn. You want to carry her first, or shall I? Thorn raised an eyebrow. Do you know how heavy she is? Cinder kicked him. He huffed. Fine, you first. Are we sure about this? Cress whispered. She was crouched behind a trellis covered in ivy, along with Cinder, Thorn, and Jason, watching as Iko lifted the shining gold door knocker for the third time. I told you they aren't home, said Jason, annoyed at the precaution of having Iko scout out the pillared mansion before they went in. This family is popular at court. They'll be staying at the palace all week. After a fourth knock bore no result, Iko turned to them and shrugged. Cress wrapped an arm around Cinder's waist. She was a good height to act as a crutch for her, as they hobbled through the garden. 
Cinder's dead metal foot dragged a groove into the pathway of tumbled blue grass. What if it's locked? Asked Cress, glancing down the street, although they hadn't seen a single person. Perhaps this whole city was off having a raucous celebration at the palace. Then I'll pick it, said Thorn. The door wasn't locked. They found themselves in a grandiose entryway with a curved staircase and a sea of gold and white tiles. Thorn let out a low whistle. This place is ripe for plundering, Iko responded. Can I go plunder the master closet? Jason found an enormous vase full of flowers and set it on the floor inside the front door so anyone who opened it would knock it over and shatter the vase into a hundred tiny pieces. Fair warning that it was time for them to leave. It didn't take them long to find a kitchen that was bigger than Cress's satellite. Cress and Iko maneuvered Cinder onto a stool and helped her prop up her leg while Jason rummaged through the pantry, emerging with an assortment of nuts and fruits. What do you think is wrong with you? Iko asked. Cinder smacked her palm against the side of her head, like she hoped to jog something back into place. It's not a power issue, she said. My eyes are working, at least. It's something in the connection between the brain-machine interface and my prostheses. It affected both my hand and leg at the same time, so it must be a primary connection. My control panel could have gotten waterlogged or something. Could be a few dead wires, she sighed. I guess I should feel lucky. If my power cell had died, I'd be dead with it. They mulled over this for a moment, picking at the food. Thorn glanced back at the pantry. Did you see any rice in there? Maybe we could fill Cinder's head with it. Everyone stared at him. You know, to absorb the moisture, or something. Isn't that a thing? We're not pouring rice in my head. But I'm pretty sure I remember someone putting a port screen in a bag of rice once, after they'd put it through a clothes washer and thorn, just trying to be helpful. What do you need to fix it? Asked Cress, then hunched down between her shoulders as all eyes turned toward her. Cinder frowned and Cress could see her working through different possibilities. Then she started to laugh, dragging her good hand through her tangled, still damp hair. A mechanic, she said. A really good one. Iko beamed. That we have. Plus, we're in a mansion. They have tons of technology here. We just need to find you the right parts and tools, and you can talk me through fixing you, right? Cinder pursed her lips. There were dark circles beneath her eyes and an unhealthy pallor to her skin. Cress had never seen her look so worn down. Iko cocked her head. She must have noticed it too, because she spent a moment studying Cinder, then everyone in their group. You all look awful. Maybe you should rest for a while. I can keep watch. They mulled over the idea for a minute before Thorne said, that's actually not a bad idea. Iko shrugged. Someone has to stay clear-headed in an emergency situation, frowning, she added. Although, I never thought it would have to be me. Thorn turned to Cinder. You'll think more clearly after a nap. She ignored him, staring at the counter. There was a dejected slump to her shoulders, a hollowness in her gaze. I don't think a nap is going to fix this, she said, lifting her cyborg hand. It hung limply from her wrist, a hole where one finger had been removed. 
I can't believe this is happening. I can't fight like this, or start a revolution, or be a queen. I can't do anything like this. I'm broken. I'm literally broken. Iko settled a hand on Cinder's shoulder. Yeah, but broken isn't the same as unfixable. Chapter 55 This was a bad decision, said Scarlet. Winter peered over at her. There was discomfort in Scarlet's face, a deep-etched line between her eyebrows. Reaching over, Winter tugged at one of Scarlet's curls. You have not turned back yet. Scarlet batted her away. Yeah, because I no longer have any idea where we are. Scarlet glanced over her shoulder. We've been wandering around these caves for hours. Winter followed her look, but the cave was so dim they couldn't see very far before it disappeared into shadows, lit only by the occasional glowing orb on the ceiling. Winter couldn't tell how far she and Scarlet had come through the underground lava tubes in search of the wolf soldiers, in search of an army. And she still didn't know how much farther they would have to go. Whenever she thought of turning back, though, she would imagine she heard a faint howl in the distance, compelling her to go on. Her dream of Ryu and Lavana clung to her thoughts like sticky pollen, inciting her resolve again and again. Lavana believed she could control everyone on this moon, the people, the soldiers, Winter herself. But she was wrong. Winter was sick of being manipulated, and she knew she couldn't be the only one. She would find soldiers to fight for her, and together they would rid themselves of her stepmother and her cruelty. They rounded another bend. The dark, gritty walls never changed. The ceiling was jagged, but the ground was worn smooth from years of foot traffic. And marching. Did the soldiers march? Winter wasn't sure. She had not paid much attention to her stepmother's army. She wished she'd taken more of an interest in what Lavana was doing with these boys made soldiers. What she had been planning all along. Otherwise, the cave looked like it had since it had first been carved out by molten lava billions of years ago. Back then, Luna had been a place of heat and transformation. It was difficult to fathom now in these cold, barren caverns, left to exist in quiet darkness. When Earthens had first built their colony, they had made temporary homes of the vast interconnected lava tubes while the domes were under construction, and afterward converted them into storage and shuttle rails. Only recently had they been used for something violent and grotesque. Secret barracks for a secret army, she whispered to herself. All right, time out. Scarlet stopped and settled her hands on her hips. Do you even know where we're going? Winter tugged on a lock of her own hair this time, like a spring curled against her cheek. There was still a bump on her scalp where she'd hit her head, though the headache was mostly gone. Many of the lava tubes that were not used for the shuttles were converted into underground training facilities. That is where the soldiers will be, at least those who have not been sent to Earth. Scarlet blinked slowly. And how many lava tubes are there under Luna's surface? Winter blinked slowly back. I do not know. But did you know Luna started its life as a giant ball of magma, liquid, and burning?
Scarlet nodded her lips to one side. How many wolf regiments are left on Luna? This time, Winter did not answer at all. Exhaling, Scarlet rubbed at her brow. I knew better. I knew better than to listen to you. Winter. We could be wandering down here for days and not see a single person. And even if we do find one of these regiments or packs or whatever they call themselves, they are most likely going to eat us. This is suicide. She pointed back the direction they'd come. We should be looking for allies, not enemies. You go back then, Winter continued down the endless tunnel. Scarlet let out a bedraggled groan and stomped after her. Thirty minutes, she said. We are going to walk for thirty more minutes, and if we haven't seen any evidence that we're getting closer, then we are turning around and going back, and I am not taking no for an answer. I'll club you over the head and drag you back if I have to. Winter fluttered her lashes, amused by the thought. We will find them, Scarlet friend. They will join us. Your wolf is proof that they are men, not monsters. I really wish you would stop comparing them with wolf. Wolf is different. The rest of them, they are monsters. I met Wolf's pack in Paris, and they were brutal and terrible. And that was her special ops. And they are still mostly human. You can't reason with these monsters any more than you could, uh, uh, a pack of wolves? Scarlet glared. Exactly. Ryu was my friend. Scarlet threw her hands into the air. What are you going to do, play fetch with them? You're thinking about this all wrong. They are under Levana's control, or whoever their thaumaturge is. They will do what they are told, and that will be to eat us. They were young boys forced into a difficult situation. They did not ask for this life, just as your wolf didn't ask for it. But they have done what they needed to do to survive. If they are given the opportunity to break their binds of enslavement, I believe they will take it. I believe they will side with us. Winter heard a distant, low howl and shivered. Scarlet didn't seem to hear it, though, so she said nothing. You have no idea whose side they'll take. They've been so messed with. They'll side with whoever is offering them a bigger piece of steak. Scarlet hesitated. What's wrong? Are you hallucinating right now? Winter forced a smile. Not unless you are a figment of my imagination. But how could I ever be sure one way or the other? So I will go on believing you are real. Scarlet looked unimpressed with her logic. You know what these men become, don't you? You know they can never be normal again? I would think that you, of all people, would believe in their ability to change. Wolf changed because of his love for you. Why can they not change also? She started walking again. Wolf is... is not the same. Winter, I know you're used to batting your eyelids at everyone who walks by and expecting them to fall in love with you. But that is not going to happen here. They are going to laugh at you and mock you, and then they are going to eat me. Yes, I understand. You don't seem to be grasping the meaning behind the words. This isn't a metaphor. I'm talking about huge teeth and digestive systems. Fat and bones and marrow and meat, Winter sang,
We only wanted a snack to eat. Scarlet grunted. You can be so disturbing. Winter hooked her elbow with Scarlet's. Don't be afraid. They will help us. Before Scarlet could mount another argument, a peculiar smell assaulted their senses, sharp and pungent. An animal smell, like in the menagerie, but different. Sweat and salt and body odor mingling in the cave's stale air, along with something rank, like old meat. Well, said Scarlet, I think we've found them. A chill crawled down Winter's neck. Neither of them moved for a long while. If we can smell them, said Scarlet, they can smell us. Winter raised her chin. I'll understand if you leave. I can go on without you. Scarlet seemed to consider it, but then she shrugged. Her expression was reckless. I'm beginning to think we're all going to end up wolf food anyway by the time this is over. Facing her, Winter cupped Scarlet's face in both hands. It is not like you to talk like that. Scarlet clenched her jaw. They took wolf and they took cinder. And as much as I want to see Levana ripped into tiny pieces and fed to her own mutants, I just don't think we have a whole lot of hope without them. She gulped, her resentment clouding over. And I... I don't want to see this place. He was trained here, too, you know. I'm afraid to see what he came from, what he... who he was. He is your wolf now, and you are his alpha. Scarlet laughed. According to Jason, you need a pack to be an alpha. Jason. The name brought sunshine and blood and kisses and growls, rising to winter skin. She gave it a moment to sink back toward her bones before she tilted Scarlet's head down and placed a kiss on the top of her flame and fury hair. I will get you your pack. Chapter 56 They hadn't gone much farther before they detected noise rumbling through the caverns. Low and thunderous, like a distant train, they came to another fork in the tunnel, and while one path led into further darkness and rock and nothingness, the other ran into a set of iron doors. Hinged into the regolith walls, the doors looked ancient. Their sole ornamentation was a faded label painted on the lower corner of each door. Storeroom 16, Sector LW12. A tiny screen had been embedded into the wall beside the doors. It was old and outdated, and the text kept flickering. Lunar Regiment 117, packs 1009 to 1020. The ground and walls thrummed with activity beyond those doors, laughter and shouting and thumping footsteps. For the first time since she'd embarked on this quest, Winter felt a flutter of nervousness in her stomach. Scarlet glanced at her. It isn't too late to go back. I disagree. Sighing, Scarlet studied the screen. Eleven packs, so around a hundred soldiers, give or take. Winter hummed, a sound without commitment. A hundred soldiers. Animals, killers, predators, or so everyone claimed. Had she truly gone mad to think she could change them? Her eyes began to mist, surprising her. She had not realized that thinking of her own imbalance would sadden her. But the feel of her ribs crushing against her heart 
was unmistakable. Why did you follow me? She asked, staring at the solid doors. Knowing what's wrong with me, knowing that I'm broken. Scarlet scoffed. That is an excellent question. A loud thud was followed by hollers. The walls reverberated around them. They had not been noticed. Scarlet was right. They could turn around and leave. Winter could admit she was delusional and no one should ever listen to her. She was adept only at making the wrong decisions. I couldn't let you go on your own, said Scarlet, most of the venom gone from her tone. Why? I don't know. Call me crazy. Winter shut her eyes. I won't. You are not damaged like I am. You are not a hundred scattered pieces blowing farther and farther away from each other. How would you know? Listing her head, Winter dared to look up again. Scarlet leaned against the regolith wall. My father was a liar and a drunk. My mother left when I was a kid and never looked back. I witnessed a man kill my grandmother and then rip out her throat with his teeth. I was kept in a cage for six weeks. I was forced to cut off my own finger. I'm pretty sure I'm falling in love with a guy who has been genetically modified and mentally programmed to be a predator. So all things considered, I'd say I have a fair amount of scattered pieces myself. Winter felt her resolve crumbling. You came with me because it was the quickest path to death then. A crease formed between Scarlet's eyebrows. I'm not suicidal, she said, the sharpness returning to her tongue. I came with you because... She crossed her arms over her chest. Because ever since my grandma took me in, I've heard people tell me she was crazy. A kooky, belligerent old woman, always good for a joke around town. They had no idea how brilliant she was. That crazy old woman risked everything so she could protect Cinder when she was a baby. And in the end, she sacrificed her own life rather than give up Cinder's secret. She was brave and strong, and everyone else was too close-minded to see it. She rolled her eyes, annoyed with her own frustration. I guess I'm just hoping that despite all the absurd things you say, you might also be a little bit brilliant. That this time, you might be right. She held up her finger. That said, if you're going to tell me how stupid this idea was to begin with, and we should run like hell, then I'm right behind you. Beyond the doors, something crashed, and there was a round of boisterous laughter. Then, a howl. A chorus of a dozen other voices rose up to meet it, sounding victorious. A muscle twitched in Winter's jaw, but her lip had stopped trembling. She hadn't cried. She'd been too focused on Scarlet's words to remember to be upset. I believe they were boys once, and they can be boys again. I believe I can help them, and they will help me in return. Scarlet sighed, sounding a little disappointed and a little resigned but not surprised. And I believe you're not as crazy as you want everyone to think you are. Winter's gaze flitted towards Scarlet, surprised, but Scarlet didn't return it. She stepped forward and placed her palm on one of the heavy doors. So do we knock? I don't think they would hear us. Another round of howls echoed through the cavern. Winter swiped her fingers across the screen, and the text changed. Security clearance identification required.
She pressed the pads of her fingers onto the screen, and it brightened, welcoming her. The doors began to open, creaking on ancient hinges. When Winter turned back, Scarlet was staring at her, aghast. You do realize that you just alerted the queen to where you are, right? Winter shrugged. By the time she finds us, either we will have an army to protect us, or we will have already become meat and marrow and bone. She drifted through the doors and instantly froze. Scarlet had been right. There were about a hundred men in the 117th Regiment of Lavana's army, though men was a general term for what they'd become. Soldiers felt inadequate, too. Winter had been hearing stories of her stepmother's army for years, but they were far more beastly than she had ever imagined, with malformed bodies, fur down the sides of their faces, and snarled lips curved around enormous teeth. This storeroom, which had begun life as housing for the first colonists, was equipped to hold many more than a hundred people. The ceiling reached three stories high, and was rough with divots and stalactites where air bubbles had formed and lava had dripped eons ago. Though the cavern was ancient and impenetrable, someone long ago had the foresight to reinforce it with interspersed stone columns. Countless alcoves and more corridors stretched in every direction, leading to additional barracks and training grounds. Around the exterior were dingy lockers and open crates, many of which had been left wide open and neglected. Benches and exercise equipment filled the remaining space. Freestanding punching bags, chin-up bars, weights. Many of them had been shoved aside to make room for the main entertainment in the room's center. The howls dissolved into cheering and whooping again. Canine teeth flashed. Most of them were in some state of undress. Missing shirts, bare feet, a stunning amount of hair in places that Winter wasn't sure were natural or not. A shudder danced over her skin. Scarlet's words rang back to her. They will do what they're told, and that will be to eat us. Scarlet was right. This had been a mistake. She was not brilliant. She was losing her mind. The doors slammed shut, making her jump. One man jerked around to face them. His gaze fell on Winter, skipped to Scarlet, then returned. First curious, then inevitably ravenous. A sly smile curled one side of his mouth. Well, well, he mused. Feeding time already? Chapter 57 The man who had spoken grabbed the nearest soldier by the neck and tossed him toward the center of the circle. Shouts of surprise and anger rolled through the gathered men as a few toppled beneath their comrades' weight. Within seconds, there was a furor of flying fists and snapping jaws. One man slashed at the one who had noticed them, sharpening fingernails, drawing lines of blood across his chest. A second later, he was also picked up and hurled into the turmoil. Manners, someone yelled, loud enough that his voice shook through the walls and Winter had a quick and searing vision of the dome of lava rock crumbling on top of them. It would start with a quaking of the walls, then a few dribbles of dust and pebbles, until a crack drove its way from one end of the cavern to the other, opening wide and, 
There are ladies in our presence, said the mutant who had first seen them. His nose crinkled at the word ladies. The attention of a hundred hybrid soldiers landed on Winter and Scarlet. As eyebrows raised and thorny gazes raked over them, the men seemed to forget their brawl. They started to spread out, lithe, muscular bodies creeping between the mess of equipment with agonizing patience. Noses twitching, tongues tapping at sharp teeth. Hair prickled at the back of Winter's neck, and she found herself rooted to the floor, shocked by the sudden, breathable silence. Once the crowd had dispersed, she could see that their focus had been on a fight between two of the soldiers, both of whom were bleeding and swollen and grinning, as intrigued as the rest. It was impossible to tell which of them had been winning the fight prior to the interruption. There was an abundance of scars and faded bruises on all of the men, suggesting that such brawls were a common occurrence, a way to pass the time while waiting to be sent to Earth and take part in Levana's war. Fear pulsed through winter. What if she had been wrong? Hello, pretty ladies, said one of the soldiers, rubbing his whiskered jaw. Are you lost? Winter shrank closer to Scarlet, but Scarlet pulled away, stepping forward to meet them. Scarlet was the brave one, the resilient one, proving it as she tilted back her head in mock defiance. Which one of you is in charge? said Scarlet, fisting her hands on her hips. We want to speak with your alpha. A dull cackle spread through them. Which one? said the first mutant. Eleven packs, eleven alphas. The strongest one, said Scarlet, piercing him with a glower as fierce as any winter had ever seen. If you're not sure which one that is, we'll wait while you fight it out. Are you sure you don't want to take your pick, pretty lady? One asked as he prowled behind them, cutting off their exit. Not that Winter had any hope of running. She could tell they were trying to intimidate her in Scarlet, and she could feel to her bones how well it was working. I'm sure any of us would be happy to satisfy whatever needs you might have. Scarlet glared at him from the corner of her eye. I already have an alpha mate to satisfy my needs, and he could slaughter any one of you. The man barked, and a rough chuckle rumbled through the rest of them. The first soldier stepped closer to Scarlet, and his expression was intrigued again. She's telling the truth, he said, silencing the laughter. His scent is all over her, one of us. His eyes narrowed. Or a special operative? Alpha Zev Kesley, said Scarlet. Heard of him? A beat, a smirk. No. Scarlet clicked her tongue. Too bad. I can already tell he's both twice the man and twice the wolf of any of you. He could teach you a thing or two. The man laughed again, amused. I didn't realize they were letting our pack brothers take mates on Earth. More reason to anticipate our deployments. Winter pressed her sweating palms against her side, grateful that Scarlet held their attention. If she'd been forced to speak, her mouth would have spouted incoherent mutterings, and they would have laughed at her one moment and sunk their teeth into her the next. Jaws clamping around her limbs, 
teeth tearing her muscles from the bones. We're not here to discuss my love life, or yours, said Scarlet. You seem to be the most chatty. Do you nominate yourself as the leader here? He tilted his head in a manner that reminded Winter of Ryu. How he would sometimes cock his ears when he heard the gamekeeper arriving with a meal. Alpha Strom, at your service, he dipped into a mocking bow. Though he wasn't larger than the others, he moved with an unnatural grace, like Wolf, like Ryu. And at the service of the pretty thing back there. I suspect you speak fast, pretty lady. I can hear my pack's stomachs growling. One of the soldiers ran his tongue over his bottom lip. Scarlet turned and gave Winter a look. Shivering from head to toe, Winter reached for Scarlet, using her shoulder for balance. The soldiers laughed. Winter, Scarlet hissed. I'm frightened, Scarlet. Scarlet's expression turned to stone. Perhaps you'd like to go outside and compose yourself, and we can come back later, she said, speaking through clenched teeth. Winter shuddered at Scarlet's anger, though she knew Scarlet had a right to it. Coming here had been her idea. If they both died here, it would be her fault. But she wouldn't allow it. These were men, she reminded herself. Men who deserved life and happiness as much as anyone. Holding firm to that thought, she forced herself away from Scarlet and was grateful when the dizziness receded. I am Winter Hale Blackburn, Princess of Luna, she said, and could tell even in her own ears how faintly her voice carried. Not at all like Scarlet's. I need your help, eyes flashed, delighted. In return, I wish to help you. Amusement. Hunger. Less curiosity than she would have hoped. She gulped. Queen Levana, my stepmother, has treated you with cruelty and unfairness. She has taken you from your families and acted as though you are nothing to her but scientific experiments. She has locked you away in these caves for no other purpose than to be sent to Earth and fight in her war. And what will you be given for your service? They all waited with their hard and sparkling eyes, watching Winter like she was their afternoon snack, still cooking on a spit. It was not unlike the looks she'd received from countless men in Lavana's court. Nothing, she said, shoving her fear into the bottom of her stomach. If you survive your battles, you'll come back here and be enslaved in these caverns until she needs you again. You will not be allowed to return to your families. You will not rejoin our society and live what lives you may once have dreamed of living, back before you were, you were. Monsters, suggested one of the men, grinning around the word. I do not believe you are monsters. I believe you have been given very few choices, and you are dealing with the consequences as well as you can. A snort came from Alpha Strom. Who knew we would be receiving such counsel from the princess herself today? Tell me, pretty highness, does this therapy session come with refreshments? Your friend, perhaps, said another. She smells delicious. Scarlet crossed her arms, fingers digging into her elbows. Winter squared her shoulders. We came here to give you another choice. The people of Luna are planning a rebellion, 
In two days, we will be marching into the central dome of Artemisia. We plan to overwhelm the queen and her court, to overthrow her and put an end to her tyranny. I ask that you join us, fight on our behalf and help us end the rule that took you from your lives and turned you into soldiers. Ensure that you will never become prisoners or experiments or animals created for Levana's amusement ever again. A silence settled over them, as if they were waiting to make sure she was finished. Winter searched for some indication they were even listening. She felt like a lamb in their den. She has pretty words. Winter turned toward the voice. It was one of the men who had been involved in the fight. Fresh blood had dried at the corner of his lip. He tipped his head when he saw that he had her attention. His eyelids dipped suggestively. Not quite as pretty as her face. Except for these scars. She jumped and spun around. She hadn't heard this soldier step so close, and now he was hovering over her. He dragged a sharp-tipped nail down her cheek. Where'd these come from, pretty lady? She didn't, couldn't answer. An arm wrapped around Winter's shoulders, pulling her back. Stop it, said Scarlet, tucking Winter behind her, though it was useless. They were surrounded. Were you listening to her? You can call yourselves soldiers or wolf packs or whatever you want. But the truth is, you're nothing but slaves. Winter is offering you freedom. She's giving you a choice, which is more than Levana has ever offered. Will you help us or not? You'll be slaughtered, someone whispered against Winter's ear. She gasped and turned again, locking her back against Scarlet's. The soldiers crept closer predators toying with their catch, luxuriating in the anticipation of the meal. A bunch of pathetic civilians are going to stand up against the queen, another said. They don't stand a chance. And another. Don't you know who the queen will call on to hold them back if there are too many to manipulate? Us, spoke a third. Her army. You mean... Her lapdogs, said Scarlet, and though her tone was mocking, her back was pressed against Winter just as forcefully. Her pets, the soldiers' faces twitched. If you side with us, said Winter, we can win. We will win. What will happen to us if we side with you and you lose, said Alpha Strom. One of them brushed a finger down Winter's throat. Her heart skipped. With you beside us, she said, her voice wavering. We will not lose. Her eyes began to water from fear. You can stop now. You've frightened us enough. I know you are not the vicious creatures you're pretending to be, that you've been trained and tormented and built to be. You are men. You are citizens of Luna. If you help me, if you fight for me, I can help you get your lives back. You can't tell me you don't want that. She could feel their breath on her now. She could see the colored flecks in their eyes, smell the sweat and blood on their skin. One of the men was sucking on a knuckle, as if he couldn't wait to taste her flesh. They were a noose, growing tighter. Pulse hiccuping, Winter raised her hand to her throat where the soldier had touched her. She felt a prickly rope there, 
tightening, squeezing. She squeaked and tried to wrap her fingers around it, to form a barrier between the rope and her throat, but it was already too tight. Spoiled little princess, one of the soldiers hissed, scooping down so she could feel his breath on her cheek. Winter shivered and knew her gaze was watery and pleading. We don't fight for princesses. We play with them. Alpha Strom smirked. Ready to play? Chapter 58 Scarlet pushed Winter, hard, sending her sprawling to the floor with a cry. Through a veil of hair, she watched Scarlet elbow one of the mutants in his nose. She reached for the gun beneath her hoodie, but the soldiers were already grabbing her, pinning her arms to the side. The gun fell uselessly to the ground. A dozen enormous hands pulled Winter back to her feet. She hung limp in their hold, her legs too weak to carry her. She was shaking from head to toe, and the men were flickering in her vision. Engineered soldiers one moment, and a pack of wild wolves the next, prowling and baring their enormous fangs. Scarlet screamed something, a battle cry. She was struggling like a caged tigress, hair flying, teeth snapping, while Winter hung, weak and brittle, and trying to block out the vision before it overwhelmed her. Her head was heavy as moonrock and spinning as fast as an asteroid in orbit, burdened with the brutal knowledge that this was real. They were going to die. They were going to be devoured. The tears came on fast and overflowed quickly, leaking down her cheeks. Why are you being so cruel? Ryu would not act like this. He would be ashamed of you. Hold it together, Winter, Scarlet growled. The world hesitated, dissolved into blackness before reforming again. Winter knew she would collapse if they let her go, but she couldn't find grounding in her own strength. Wait, I have an idea, she said brightly, lifting her head. Let us play a different game, like when Jason and I would play house. This one can be our pet. Tipping forward, she tried to put her palm on the nearest soldier's nose, but he jerked away from her, surprised. She blinked at him, trying to remember who he was, what he was. No? Would you rather play fetch? His face turned from baffled to angry in half a second. He sneered, his teeth taking up half his face. What's wrong with her? Someone spat. Or I'll be the pet, if you prefer, she swayed against those holding her. Sticks and bones, sticks and stones. We'll play for hours, but I'll never tire and I'll always come back. I'll always come back, her voice shattered. Because Ryu always always came back. Sticks and bones, sticks and bones. Lunar sickness, someone murmured. Winter sought him, finding a warm-skinned soldier who could have been handsome before he'd been made so very ugly. He looked at her with the same hunger as any of them, but there also might have been sympathy. Winter couldn't remember what she'd said that was insane. What had they been talking about? Leaving? Weren't they leaving? She wanted to leave. Or perhaps they'd been making dinner plans. Hosting a cocktail party. That's right, said Scarlet. She was panting. She refuses to manipulate anyone or to use her glamour, even when it could be highly beneficial, unlike the people you serve, obviously. 
It will not affect how she tastes, someone yelled. Winter started to giggle. They had all become animals now. Even Scarlet had turned wolfish, with pointed ears and a fluffy tail and flaming red fur. She turned her own muzzle up to the cavernous ceiling and sang. And the earth is full tonight, tonight, and the wolves all howl. One of the hands, paws on her forearm, loosened. She howled again. A princess of Artemisia, Alpha Strom muttered, who does not use her gift by choice. She thinks it's wrong to control people, said Scarlet, and she doesn't want to end up like the queen. You can see the toll it's taking on her. Winter's voice cracked and she stopped howling. When she slumped again, the hands released her, letting her crash to her knees. She gasped in pain and looked around. Scarlet was once again Scarlet, and the men were once again soldiers. She blinked and was grateful when the hallucination didn't return. I'm sorry, she said. I did not mean to interrupt your meal. Scarlet groaned. When she says she'll never manipulate you, she means it. And she does plan on giving you your freedom back. I doubt you'll ever get such a promising offer again. The grate of ancient hinges startled Winter. The soldiers pulled apart. The huge iron doors creaked open, and the soldiers separated, filing into neat rows fast as an oiled machine. Scarlet took the opportunity to snatch up her gun again, tucking it against her side. Beyond the doors stood eight thaumaturges, one in second-tier red, the rest in black. The red-coated thaumaturge, a man with silver-gray hair, saw Winter and Scarlet and smiled viper-like at them. Hello, Highness. We heard you might be down here. Some of the soldiers shifted aside, making a clear aisle between the thaumaturges and Winter. Hello, thaumaturge Holt, Winter answered, rising onto her wobbly legs, though they were aching. She felt like she should be afraid of these men and women. Normally, the sight of their coats and embroidered runes filled her with anxiety and dread, and a thousand memories of people dying on the throne room floor. But all her fear had been used up. When the system picked up on your identification, I thought it must be a mistake. I did not think even you would be crazy enough to come here. His gaze cut over the soldiers. Were you not hungry? Or were the girls not appetizing enough for your tastes? Oh, they were very hungry indeed, said Winter, struggling to her feet. Isn't that right, Alpha friends? Wolf friends? Her head swayed to one side. But I had hoped they might protect me and fight for me if I could remind them they were men once, men who did not wish to be monsters. Turns out, said Scarlet, they are just Levana's trained dogs after all. A handful of the soldiers cast them cool glares. Thaumaturge Holt scoffed. I'd heard about your sharp tongue. His gaze dipped toward the stubbed finger on Scarlet's hand. Say and think what you want, Earth child. These soldiers know their duty. They were created to carry out Her Majesty's bidding, and they will do it without complaint. Is that so? Winter wasn't sure which of them had spoken, 
but the words were so full of loathing they made her skin crawl. Holt glowered at the surrounding men, cocky and hateful. I trust this isn't dissension I'm detecting, Regiment 117. Her Majesty would be disappointed if she heard some of her prized soldiers were showing disrespect to their masters. Prized puppies, you mean, muttered Scarlet. Will they each be getting their own diamond collar, too? Scarlet friend, Winter whispered. You are being inconsiderate. Scarlet rolled her eyes. They are about to kill us, in case you hadn't noticed. Yes, we are, said Holt. Men, you may kill these traitors. Winter sucked in a breath, but Alpha Strom raised a hand, and none of the soldiers moved. Interesting that you mentioned our masters before, as you seem to be missing a few. The seven thaumaturges behind Holt remained as statues, staring into the ranks. Winter counted. There were eleven packs in this regiment. There would have to be eleven thaumaturges to control them. I will forgive your ignorance in this matter, Holt said through clenched teeth, as you could not have known that our country is in upheaval. Some of our highest-ranking thaumaturges and guards, and even soldiers like you, were murdered today, along with an attempted assassination on our queen. So you see, we do not have time for discussions. I ordered you to kill these girls. If you refuse, I will do it myself, and you will be punished for failing to obey a direct order. Winter felt the bodies around her shift, as they had when they first surrounded her in Scarlet, moving almost imperceptibly closer, tightening a knot. Too bad you did all that tampering with our brains, said Alpha Strom. Otherwise, you could have manipulated us, right? Forced us to follow your command? Instead, you've turned us into a bunch of wild animals. A pack of hungry wolves, someone growled. Killers, Winter whispered to herself. Predators, all. They moved around Winter and Scarlet like water around a rock. Winter grabbed Scarlet's wrist and tugged her close, their shoulders tight together. You didn't make me to be good at math, Strom continued. But, by my count, you couldn't punish all of us, even if you wanted to. They had half-circled around the thaumaturges, who were showing uncertainty now. Enough, Holt snapped. I order you to- The tension exploded before he could finish. The soldiers converged on their masters, mouths snarling, and enormous hands ready to shred and claw and tear. Like a sonic pulse, dozens of soldiers fell to the ground, writhing and grasping their heads. Knuckles whitened as they pressed their fingertips against their scalps, screaming in pain. The few left standing bounded over their fallen comrades with faces twisted in rage. Winter flinched, watching as Alpha Strom, who had fallen in front of her, curled into a fetal position and screamed. But it was cut short and replaced with retching and a whimper. His eyes shut tight as he tried to block out whatever was being done to him. That whimper cascaded into winter like a memory. Ryu behind her, the sound of Jason's knife, the warm, sticky blood. Winter dropped to the ground and crawled toward Strom, rubbing her hands over his misshapen face, trying her best to soothe him. The tips of her fingers cracked, devastatingly cold. The fight, if it could be called a fight, 
was over in seconds. Winter couldn't recall the thaumaturgist even having the time to cry out. There was the crunch of bones, the tearing of tissue, and it was over. A quick glance confirmed eight bloody bodies inside the cavern's entrance, and a couple dozen soldiers standing over them, wiping the blood from their chins and digging the flesh from beneath their fingernails. Winter's breath fogged in the air. The cold was in her stomach, too, icing over. Her fingers were still in Strom's hair when he suddenly grabbed her hand and threw it back at her. Scarlet was there in a second, her elbows hooked under Winter's arm, pulling her away. All around them, those who had fallen were recovered from whatever torment their masters had inflicted on them. Their faces were glazed from pain. But there was also a satisfaction when they noticed the dead thaumaturges. Strom pushed himself into a crouch and gave his head a shake. His piercing gaze found Winter. She curled against her fiery friend, shivering. Strom's words were slurred when he spoke. You have lunar sickness because you cannot control people like they do. Winter glanced toward the thaumaturges, or what was left of them, and immediately regretted it. She looked down at her brittle fingertips instead. Oh, I could, she stuttered around her numb lips. But I know what it's like to be controlled as much as you do. Strom stood, gaining his strength back faster than many of the others. He inspected Winter and Scarlet for a long while. Finally, he said, she will send more of her hounds to punish us for this. They will torture us until we are all begging for them like the dogs we are. Though his voice was rough, a smile crept across his vicious mouth. But to know the taste and smell of thaumaturge blood is worth it. One soldier howled in agreement and was soon joined by a chorus of howls, splitting through Winter's ears and making the cavern tremble. Alpha Strom faced the regiment and there was a moment of celebration, fists clasping fists and howls that went on and on. Winter forced herself to stand, though she was still cold and trembling. Scarlet stayed at her side, a pillar. Winter's voice was strong when she asked, are you now satiated? Strom turned back, and the raucous congratulations between his men began to fade. Their eyes still showed hunger as they raked over the two girls. Are your cravings filled? Asked Winter. Is your hunger abated? Winter, Scarlet hissed. What are you doing? She whispered back. I am thawing out. Scarlet frowned, but Winter took a step away from her. Well, are you satisfied? Our hunger is never satisfied, one of the soldiers growled. I thought as much, said Winter. I know you still want to eat my friend and me, for what a juicy, tasty snack we would be. She smiled, not as terrified by the prospect as she had been before. But if you choose to help us instead, perhaps... You will soon be feasting on the queen herself, and won't her flesh be more satisfying than ours? More satisfying even than your dead masters in the doorway. A silence hovered around them. Winter watched the calculations between their faces and listened to a few of them sucking on their teeth. Fight with me, she said. 
when enough time had passed and neither she nor Scarlet had been devoured. I will not control you. I will not torture you. Help me end Levana's rule, and we will all have our freedom. Alpha Strom met the eyes of a handful of the soldiers, the other Alphas, she presumed, before fixing a penetrating look on her. I cannot speak for the entire regiment, he finally said, but I will accept your offer. If you swear to never control us as they have done, my pack will fight for your revolution. Some of the men nodded, others growled, but Winter thought it was a growl of agreement. In response, she lifted her nose to the cavern ceiling and howled. Chapter 59 Scarlet waited until this new round of howls abated, echoing off the cave walls before throwing herself in front of Winter. You understand, she said, shoving a finger at Strom, that by agreeing to help us, you can only attack Queen Levana and the people who serve her. No civilians whatsoever, not even those obnoxious aristocrats, unless they pose a threat. Our goal is to dethrone Levana, not slaughter the whole city. And we're not giving you all a free meal ticket either. We expect you to follow orders and make yourself useful. That could mean training some of the people from the sectors in how to fight or use weapons. Or it could mean carrying injured people out of the line of fire. I don't know. But it does not mean you get to run rampant through the streets of Artemisia, destroying everything in sight. Can you agree to that? Strom held her gaze, his ferocity once again turning to amusement. I understand why your mate chose you. I'm not looking for personal commentary, she spat. Strom nodded. We agree to your demands, and when Levana is gone, we will be free men, able to pursue a life of our choosing. So long as that life follows the laws of society, yes, that's right. Strom surveyed the crowd. If it wasn't for all the blood, it would look as if the killings of the thaumaturges had never happened. Alpha Perry, Alpha Shua. One by one, he counted off the remaining alphas, and one by one, they accepted Scarlet and Winter's terms. When it was done, Winter turned to Scarlet with a weary yet endearing smile. I told you they would join us. Scarlet inhaled sharply. We need to find out what's happening on the surface. Is there some way to communicate with the sectors? Tell them the revolution is going to happen, even if Cinder... She couldn't finish the sentence. She had no idea what had become of Cinder or Wolf. Wolf. Zaev, her alpha mate. Thinking of him cut a hole in her chest, so she wouldn't. She would believe he was alive, because he had to be alive. We have to head to the surface anyway said Strom. These lava tubes don't connect to the maglev tracks. Or, they do, but it will take us too far out of the way. Better to head up to the nearest sector and infiltrate the tunnels that way. Which sector is that? asked Scarlet. LW-12, someone said. Lumber and wood production. Dangerous work, lots of injuries. Doubt they'd be too sympathetic to Her Majesty. We might have luck obtaining weaponry there, too said another. How far is it? asked Scarlet. This used to be the storeroom for LW-12. Strom pointed at the ceiling. It's right over our heads. 
Once they were back in the caves, it took fewer than ten minutes before a man was prying open a metal door that led to a thin stairwell. It seemed like an endless amount of stairs, the confined space quickly becoming stifling and hot. Scarlet friend? Winter's fragile voice set Scarlet on edge. Pausing, she glanced down the steps and saw the princess using the ancient rail on the wall to pull herself forward as much as her legs were pushing her. Her breath was labored, and not from the climb. What's wrong? I am a girl made up of ice and snow, whispered the princess, her eyes unfocused. Cursing, Scarlet scrambled around a group of soldiers to get to the princess. Everyone came to a stop, and Scarlet felt oddly touched at the concern she saw in a few of the soldiers' eyes. Leave it to winter to make a bunch of sadistic, hot-headed predators get all swoony over her. Though Scarlet didn't like to think that what she and Wolf had was built on Wolf's animal instincts, she couldn't help but wonder if the same sort of instincts were at play here. Now that they'd persuaded these men to join their cause, were they shifting away from predator killers to predator protectors? Perhaps they'd lived with violence and darkness for so long, a single crack in their armor was all it took to have them craving something more meaningful. Or maybe it was just Winter, who could make a rock fall in love with her if she smiled at it the right way. Are you hallucinating? Scarlet asked, pressing a hand to Winter's brow. Although, she wasn't sure what she was looking to find there. You don't feel cold. Can you walk? Are you still breathing? Winter's gaze dropped downward. My feet are encased in ice cubes. Your feet are fine. Try to walk. With an absurd amount of effort, Winter hauled herself onto the next step. She paused again, gasping for breath. Scarlet sighed. Fine, you're a girl of ice and snow. Can somebody help her? The nearest soldier took Winter's wrist and pulled her arm across his shoulders, so she could use his body as a support to climb the stairs. Soon, he was carrying her. They made it to the top, emerging into a steel holding tank that would have been used to keep in the artificial atmosphere while the domes were under construction. Then, they were outside. Or as outside as one could ever be on Luna which Scarlet felt was a sad representation. Is this supposed to be a forest? She muttered, taking in the short, skinny trees in their perfect rows. Through the trunks in the distance, she could see a vast area that had been recently cleared for timber. And to the other side, acres of young saplings. Straight ahead, in the direct center of the dome, she could make out the shape of a water fountain identical to the one from the mining sector, situated in a clearing among the trees. The grass looked unattended around it. Alpha Strom took the lead, heading away from the fountain and toward the residences on the perimeter. They could hear people, a lot of people. When they reached the main residential street, Scarlet saw dozens of civilians holding an assortment of weapons, mostly wooden sticks, standing in neat rows and being guided through a series of attack maneuvers. A barrel-chested, bearded man was walking through the rows, yelling things like, Perry! Jab! There's someone behind you! Even Scarlet's untrained eye could see that the people's movements were jerky and uncoordinated. And the people were a sad lot, most as gaunt and hungry-looking as those in the mining sector. Still, it was heartening to know the people were heeding Cinder's call. Scarlet had the gut-wrenching thought that they could be sending these people to their deaths but she shook it off. 
A bewildered scream interrupted the training. They'd been spotted. Scarlet and a hundred mutants emerged from a forest's shadow. The scream turned into a dozen more, and the rows broke apart, pulled back. But the people didn't run. Instead, as Scarlet and the mountainous soldiers came nearer, the people lifted their weapons, trying to disguise their terror behind feigned courage. Or perhaps this was the truest courage there was. The people had probably expected something like this. It would not be surprised that Lavana would punish them for this blatant show of rebellion. But a hundred soldiers must have been far beyond their expectations. True to their word, the soldiers did not attack, just lumbered forward until they stood twenty paces from the first row of citizens. Scarlet kept going, separating herself from the crowd. I know they're scary looking, she said, but we're not here to hurt you. We're friends of Princess Celine's, and you might recognize Her Highness Princess Winter. Winter's head rolled against the shoulder of the man who was holding her. It is a most profound pleasure to meet you all, she murmured, sounding half drunk. Scarlet was proud of her for making the effort. The people tightened their grips around their staffs, or spears, or whatever those were supposed to be. The bearded man pushed his way to the front of the crowd, looking both tough and anxious at once. Princess Winter is dead. No, she's not, said Scarlet. The queen tried to have her killed, but she failed. Everything she's told you has been a lie. The man stared at Winter for a long time, his face contorted with suspicion. It's not a glamour, said Scarlet. It really is her. She hesitated, rolling her eyes. Not that I have any way to prove that, but if we wanted to kill you, why bother with this charade? Look, we're here to join you in your siege on Artemisia. These men have agreed to fight on our behalf. The man studied her. Who are you? My name is Scarlet Benoit. I'm... She struggled to think of what to call herself. The pilot? The alpha female? She's an earthen, someone said. It annoyed her that they could tell so easily, like she was branded somehow. I'm a friend of Princess Celine's, she said. And I'm a friend of Princess Winter's. And not very long ago, I was a prisoner of Queen Levana. She took my finger, she held up her hand. And she took my grandmother. And now I intend to help Celine take everything from her. She gestured at the soldiers. These men have chosen our side over Levana's, just like you have. And they're the best assets we've got. Maybe they can help with your combat training. She turned to Strom. Right? Strom's expression, though, was not appeasing as he stepped up beside her. We said we would help, and we will. But we're not going to stand out here all night listening to negotiations with a bunch of lumberjacks. If they don't want us here, we'll find a sector that does. Scarlet snorted. Good luck. He growled at her. Scarlet growled back. Lips pressed into a thin line, the bearded man glanced from the nervous civilians with their sharpened sticks to the brawny, fur-covered soldiers. We've been sending messengers to the nearest sectors when we can, but it's difficult trying to coordinate the attack. The shuttles are all down, and we aren't warriors. Clearly one of the soldiers grumbled. Someone in the crowd hissed. Tell them about the guards. 
Scarlet raised her eyebrows as the crowd's fear was replaced with puffing chests and straightened spines. Guards? We've had a regiment of armed guards stationed here for years, and we've talked about trying to overwhelm them, even made plans for it before. But it always seemed pointless when Lavano would just send more. But as soon as Celine's message came through, he grinned back at his peers. Our plan worked. We had them disarmed within minutes, and now they're locked up in one of the storerooms in the mill. He crossed his arms. There were fatalities, but we knew there would be. We're willing to do what must be done, just like the people in RM9. I believe Celine has given us what might be our only chance. Scarlet blinked. What about the people in RM9? They say Celine was there, and there was a woman housing her. She was just a minor, no one special like us, but she proved how brave we can be. Maha Kesli, whispered Scarlet. The man jolted in surprise. That's right. He glanced back at the gathered people, his jaw set. She was killed for offering her home to our true queen. But her death won't be in vain, just like the deaths of all those who stood up to Lavana in the past. Scarlet nodded. Though she was still reeling, Amory had intended for Maha's death to act as a warning to anyone who sided with Cinder. But here, at least, it had the opposite effect. You're right, she said. Celine doesn't need you to be warriors. Maha Kesley certainly wasn't, but she was brave and believed in our cause. That resolve is what this revolution needs. A few more warriors wouldn't hurt, Strom muttered, grabbing a stick away from the nearest civilian who shrank away. Everyone, back in formation. Let's see if we can't make you look a little less pathetic. Chapter 60 The residents of GM3 have overpowered the guards sent to quell the uprising that began in the factories yesterday afternoon, said Amory, reciting the information from a port screen, as if this were business as usual. Lavana allowed the charade, keeping her face calm as she listened to the report. Only her foot tapped against the glistening tiles of her solar, shaking with restrained fury. We are sending a new regiment of guards, along with a thaumaturge this time. The uprising in WM2 has been put down, with 64 civilian casualties and a loss of five guards. We are conducting a full census on the sector, but we estimate close to 200 civilians escaped prior to the insurrection, along with an unknown amount of stolen weaponry and ammunition. The guards in all neighboring sectors have been put on high alert. Lavana downed a long, thin breath. She paced to the massive windows overlooking the city. Her perfect, pristine, tranquil city. It seemed impossible that so much chaos was happening on her planet. Not when everything here was so calm, so normal. And all because of that cyborg and her wretched video and her stupid speeches. Sixteen agriculture sectors have refused to load the supply trains that were brought in, Amory rambled on, and we are told that one unguarded train carrying dairy products, many intended for this week's celebrations, was boarded by a group of civilians outside Sector AR-5 and stripped of supplies. We have been unable to retrieve any of those goods or apprehend the thieves at this time, he cleared his throat. 
In Sector GM-19, the citizens have blockaded two of the three maglev platforms, and this morning, they killed 24 guards sent to tear down the blockades. We are compiling a thaumaturge-controlled regiment to send there as well. Lavana rubbed a kink from her shoulder. In Sector SB-2, the elevator chimed in the center of the room, pulling Lavana's attention away from the city. Thaumaturge Lindworm swooped in and dipped into a hasty bow, his black sleeves scraping the floor. Your Majesty. If you are here to tell me that the outer sectors are in chaos and the people are in revolt, I am afraid you are sorely late. She snapped her fingers at the servant who stood beside the elevator doors. Bring wine. The servant scurried away. No, my queen, said Lindworm. I have news from the barracks, Regiment 117. What, are they in revolt too? Lavana cackled, though beneath her hysteria lurked a growing dread. Could that cyborg have turned her entire country against her with such ease? Perhaps, my queen, said Lindworm. Lavana spun toward him. What do you mean, perhaps? They are my soldiers. They cannot revolt against me. Lindworm lowered his gaze. Our security team received notice two hours ago that Princess Winter's identity had been tracked to the outside of those barracks. Lavana's smile vanished. Winter? She glanced at Amory, who straightened. His own interest peaked. So she is alive. But what would she be doing there? The system picked up on her fingerprints being used to enter the barracks. After learning of the security breach, the eight remaining thaumaturges for Regiment 117 were sent to ascertain if the princess was posing a threat. I suppose it is too much to hope that they found the dear girl ripped to bloody shreds. That's what they should have found. The beasts should have killed Winter without hesitation. It was what they were designed to do but she suspected that was not the case. From what we can ascertain, said Lindworm, when the thaumaturges arrived, the soldiers turned on them and attacked. All eight are dead. Her blood ran hot, pounding at her temples. And Winter? The princess and the soldiers have abandoned the barracks. Security feeds showed them entering the nearest surface sector, LW-12. It is one of the sectors in upheaval, but we have not been considering them a high-priority threat. You're telling me that my soldiers have sided with the girl? Lindworm dipped his head. The servant returned carrying a silver tray with a decanter and crystal glass. Lavana could hear the decanter trembling against the glass's lip as her wine was poured. Lavana barely felt the weight of the glass in her hand as she took it. Leave, she ordered, and the servant couldn't scramble away fast enough. She glided back to the window. Her city, her moon, the planet that she would someday rule, hanging off the horizon, nearly full. When she had given Jason Clay the opportunity to earn back her favor by killing the princess, she had expected him to try something stupid, but she'd hoped he would realize how futile it was. She'd hoped he would choose to hasten Winter's death as painlessly as possible, rather than risk a much more brutal sentencing. That was mercy after all. Mercy.
but he'd failed. Winter was still alive, and she was trying to take Lavanna's army away from her. Just as she'd taken the people's adoration. Just as Selene was ruining everything. She tried to picture the scene. Docile, half-crazy Winter, batting her lashes at the brutal beasts, and them falling for it. Oh, how they would fawn over her, how they would fall to their knees and beg to do her bidding, how they would follow their beloved princess anywhere. My queen, said Amory, placing a fist against his chest. I feel responsible that we failed to find the princess during our raid on RM9. Please, allow me this chance to atone for the error. I will go to the sector and see that the princess is dealt with. I will not fail again. She turned to face him. You intend to kill her, Amory? A pause, a slight one, but there all the same. Of course, my queen. Laughing, Lavana took a draft of the wine. It was not long ago when you asked to marry her. Do you think she is beautiful? He chuckled. My queen, everyone thinks that the princess is beautiful. But she is no match for your majesty. You are perfection. I have begun to wonder if perfection might be its own flaw, she smirked. Though perhaps a flaw can contribute to perfection. She pinned Amory beneath her glare and adjusted her glamour, drawing three sharp, bloodied scratches down her right cheek. He gulped. I've known you for many years, Amory. I know how you like them broken. You would have made a good match after all. You are as pathetic as she is. She hurled the goblet. Amory ducked, blocking the glass with his forearm. It crashed to the floor, the wine spilling like a mix of water and blood, splattering on Lavana's shoes. You will have your chance to prove yourself, but not where winter is concerned. It seems no one has the stomach to do what must be done. Not you, not Jason Clay, not even my beloved pets. I am sick to death of disappointment. She turned her back, her thoughts reeled with betrayal, disgust, and jealousy. Yes, even jealousy. All over that insignificant child. The weak, fragile thing. If only she had killed her years ago. Before she became so beautiful. Before she had become a threat. She should have killed her the first time she'd seen her sleeping in her cradle. She should have killed her when she'd ordered Winter's hand to take that knife. When she'd thought for sure a slight disfigurement would erase all the whispers in the court. All the talk of her 13-year-old stepdaughter already vying for most beautiful girl on Luna. If only she hadn't made that stupid promise to Everett all those years ago. What were promises, anyway, when made to the dying? As her breathing evened again, she erased the scars from her own flawless complexion. Thaumaturge Lindworm took in a loud breath to remind her of his presence. My queen, we shall compile a task force to deal with the princess and the deserted soldiers. Shall I direct them to kill the princess on sight? She glanced over her shoulder. I am a good queen, am I not? 
Lindworm tensed. Of that there is no doubt. I have held this country together. I have waged a war for them, so my people might have access to all that Earth has to offer. I have done it for them. Why are they doing this? Why do they love her when she has done nothing to deserve it? If she wasn't so pretty, they would see her for what she is. Manipulative, conniving. She's made a mockery of everything we stand for. Neither Amory nor Lindworm responded. Drawing in a shuddering breath, Lavana snapped. Find another servant to bring me more wine. Lindworm bowed and retreated. Death is not good enough for her, Lavana murmured to herself, pacing past Amory. Death was the merciful choice, because I made a promise to my husband. But she has lost her right to mercy. I want them all to see her as she is, as weak and pathetic on the outside as she is within. Amory's lips tightened. He looked smug, even when he was groveling. Tell me how best I can serve you. This rebellion has gone on quite long enough. No food or supplies are to be sent to the outer sectors unless they are prepared to beg for forgiveness. It is time the citizens of Luna were reminded how lucky they are to have me. Her heart fluttered with anticipation. And send for Dr. Evans. I have a special task for him. And the princess, my queen? Do not worry about your darling, disfigured princess. Sneering, Lavana leaned forward and dragged her thumb across Amory's jaw, gathering a splattered drop of wine. I will deal with her myself, as I should have done a long time ago. Book Four are you afraid of poison? asked the old woman. Here, I will cut the apple in two. You eat the red half, and I shall eat the white. Chapter 61 Cinder was frustrated by her own helplessness. They'd moved into the mansion's recreational room, until then, Cinder hadn't known mansions came with recreational rooms. She was doing her best to dictate to the others what needed to be done in order to extract the video she'd tried to take in the throne room, and how to fix her leg and brain-machine interface. But while they were running around gathering supplies, she was seated on a lavish sofa with her useless hunk of metal leg. She hated knowing she could have had everything working again easily enough if she was back in her workshop in New Beijing, if she had the right tools, if she wasn't the machinery that needed fixing. She tried to be grateful. She had survived the queen's attempted execution, and she hadn't drowned in Artemisia Lake. She was with her friends again, and Iko hadn't been destroyed after all. Had, in fact, been helped by one of Amory's own guards, which confirmed what Jason had told her once before. Not everyone in the palace was as loyal to Lavana as she wanted to think. On top of all that, she might have video footage of Queen Lavana that would show what lay beneath her glamour. It could be the best weapon they had against her and her mind control. 
if the footage hadn't been destroyed in the water, that is. Thorne, pry off the back panel of that receiver, but gently. Jason, what did you find in the security panel? A bunch of wires. Jason dumped a handful of wires and a data board onto the floor. Cinder nudged at the wires with her good foot. A few of these should work. Help me turn this table over. It's similar to the holographic game boards we have on Earth, so I think... She grabbed one of the table legs with her good hand, but her injured shoulder resisted when she tried to turn it over. Jason grabbed it from her and did it himself, and Cinder felt a twitch developing in her left eye. She tried not to be resentful. It wasn't his fault she was still tender from where the wolf soldier had bitten her. And at least the numbing pain salve they'd found was performing miracles. There's not going to be blood when we open you up, is there? Said Thorne, carrying the receiver over to Cinder so she could pick through its inner workings. I mean, we're talking strictly cybernetics, right? Better be. She scanned the inner workings of the receiver while Thorne and Jason disassembled the VR gaming table. The setup was different from anything they had on Earth. Different colored wires, different size plugs and connectors. But it all functioned with similar technology and the same basic principles. It's not so much surgery as maintenance. Our biggest concern is whether or not all the hardware will be compatible. That technology is similar, but it's changed enough since Luna and Earth stopped trading with each other that, eh, I guess we'll see. She glanced at the gaming table as Thorne pried off the side panel, revealing the inner workings. Oh, perfect. Leaning forward, she pried up the fiber mode converter. We can use this. Iko and Cress strolled into the room, Cress carrying a wooden box. They have a workshop out back, said Iko. She was wearing a shimmering pink shirt she'd found in the house, mostly to cover up the bullet hole in her torso and the slash in the back of her right shoulder. Cinder hoped that once she was fixed, she'd be able to at least make Iko's arm functional again, too. I found everything on your list except the demagnetized three-pronged parts retriever, but I did find some tweezers in the bathroom. She twirled the tweezers between her good fingers. Twisting her mouth, Cinder took the tweezers and flicked a stray eyebrow hair from their tip. We'll make them work. She surveyed the pile of tools and spared parts they'd accumulated from technology all over the mansion. Without being able to see inside her own head and offer an accurate diagnosis, it was difficult to know what they were going to need to fix her. But if it wasn't included in this pile, they had little hope of finding it here. We'll need a lamp so you can see what you're doing. And what about a hand mirror? We can hold it up so I can see inside. Jason shook his head. Not in the city. Cinder scowled. Right, fine. We're going to extract the data off the vid chip first. Then we'll focus on the retina display. My eyes are still communicating with my optical nerves, so my best guess is there's been a disruption of data transfer from my control panel to the display. Could be as simple as a damaged wire. Once we have that working, I should be able to run my internal diagnostics and figure out what's wrong with my hand and leg. She pointed at a virtual reality viewing chair. Drag that over here. Jason complied, and Cinder pulled herself into the chair, facing backwards so she could drape her arms over the back. She rested her forehead on them. Cress? Ready when you are. All right, let's see what we can find. Iko brushed Cinder's hair off to one side and dug a fingernail into the latch in the back of Cinder's skull. Cinder felt the panel swing open. 
Oh, sure," said Thorn. "When I open her head panel, she yells at me. When Iko does it, she's a hero." Cinder glared at him over her folded arms. "Would you like to do this?" he grimaced. "Not even a little bit." "Then back up and give them space to work." She laid her forehead down again. "All right, Iko. There's a cable insert on the left side of the control panel." Someone turned on a lamp, and bright light edged around her vision. I see it," said Iko. "Cress, you have that port, and connector cable right here." Cinder heard them shuffling behind her, brushing more of her hair out of the way. There was a click, muffled inside her own head. A shudder coursed through her. It had been a while since an external device had been plugged into her processor. The last time had been when she drained her power source, getting the Rampion into space right after they'd escaped from New Beijing Prison. Thorn had had to recharge her with a pod ship plug. The time before that, she'd been in a research lab, strapped to a table, while a med droid downloaded the statistics of her cybernetic makeup. She really, really hated having things plugged into her head. She forced herself to take deep breaths. It was only Iko and Cress. She knew what they were plugging into her and what data they were extracting. It was not a violation. It was not an invasion, but it was impossible not to feel that way. The connection worked," said Cress. "There doesn't appear to be any obvious holes in the data, so this part of your programming wasn't affected by whatever cut off power to your limbs. I just need to find where it stores visual input, and、mm, here we go. Recordings, chronological. Would it be the most recent? Never mind." This must be it. Video encrypted, one minute fifty-six seconds long, and transferring. Cinder's gut twisted. She was not squeamish in general, but whenever her panel was open, it was impossible not to think about nameless, faceless surgeons hovering over her unconscious form, connecting wires and synapses to her brain, regulating her electrical pulses, replacing part of her skull with a removable metal plate. She squeezed her forearms until they began to hurt, trying to distract herself from the humming of her own internal workings and the sound of Cress's fingernails patting against the port screen. Eighty percent," said Cress. White spots flickered on the blackness of Cinder's eyelids. She breathed deeply, chastising herself. She was fine. This would have been a routine procedure if it had been her working on an android or another cyborg. She was fine. The humming stopped, and Cress said, "Done." Check it before you disconnect," said Cinder, gulping down a mouthful of sour saliva. "Make sure it's the right one. It's showing a lot of people." There's Kai," squealed Iko. Cinder jerked her head up. She felt the pull of the cord still connected to the port screen. "Show me," she said, even as brightness flooded her vision. She cringed, slamming her eyes shut again. Wait, hold still," said Cress. "Let me disconnect." That was the last Cinder heard. New connections found. Reality Manufacturing Cyberhand T two hundred L. Custom five utilities unrecognized. Standard applications approved. Reality Manufacturing Cyberfoot T sixty point nine L. Standard applications approved. Rebooting in three, two. One.
Cinder woke up on the sofa with the softest blanket she'd ever felt tucked around her shoulders. She squinted at the unfamiliar shadows on the ceiling, trying to shake off the bewilderment of waking up in a strange place and not being sure how she'd gotten there. Sitting up, she rubbed at her bleary eyes. The room was in disarray, tools and parts scattered around the carpet and tables. Diagnostics check complete. All systems stabilized. Two new connections found. Cyberhand, T-200. Cyberfoot, T-60.0. Run application test now. She raised her left hand in front of her face. The shiny finish it had when Dr. Erland had first given it to her was gone after two months of making repairs to the Rampion and living in a desert and a dip in Artemisia Lake. Most baffling was that she had all five fingers, although the pointer, the gun finger Lavana had removed, didn't quite match the others. The finish was different. It was too slender, and the angle of the first knuckle was crooked. Cinder ran the application test and watched as her fingers curled down one at a time. Flexed back, tightened into a fist. The wrist swiveled from side to side. Her foot went through a similar range of motions. She pulled back the blanket to watch. Basic application test complete. Standard applications approved for use. Five utilities unrecognized. Five utilities. Inspecting her hand, Cinder sent the command for the tips of her fingers to open, which they did without problem. But when she tried to turn on the flashlight to eject the knife or universal connector cable or to spin the built-in screwdriver, nothing happened. She didn't bother trying to load a projectile into the replacement finger. Still, she had the use of the limb again, and she couldn't complain. You're awake! Iko traipsed into the room carrying a tray one-handed with a glass of water and a plate of fried eggs along with bread and jam. Cinder's stomach started gnawing through its lining. You cooked? Just some skills left over from my serve 9.2 days. Iko set the plate in Cinder's lap. But I don't want to hear a word about how delicious it is. Oh, I'm sure it's awful, Cinder said, shoveling a spoonful into her mouth. Thank you, Aiko. Her gaze landed on Aiko's disabled arm. It was missing a finger. She swallowed. For the attachment, too. Aiko shrugged with her good shoulder. You have a few Escort-branded wires installed now, too. The stuff from the gaming table didn't work. Thank you. That was really generous. Aiko pushed Cinder's feet aside and sat down. You know how we androids are programmed to make ourselves useful and all that? Are you still an android? Cinder said around a bite of toast. Sometimes I forget. Me too, Iko ducked her head. When we saw the feed of you jumping off that ledge, I was so scared I thought my wiring was going to catch fire. And I thought, I will do anything to make sure she's all right. She kicked at a pile of stray screws on the carpet. I guess some programming never goes away, no matter how evolved a personality chip gets. Licking some jam from her fingertips, Cinder grinned. That's not programming, you wingnut. That's friendship. Aiko's eyes brightened. Maybe you're right. About time you woke up, lazy. Cinder glanced over her shoulder to see Thorn in the doorway. Cress and Jason filed in behind. How's the hand? 
almost fully functional. Of course, it's almost fully functional, said Aiko. Cress and I are geniuses. She flashed Cress a thumbs up. I helped, said Thorn. He held the lamp, Aiko clarified. Jason did nothing, said Thorn, pointing. Jason checked your pulse and breathing and made sure you weren't dead, said Aiko. Thorn snorted. I could have done that. Why did I pass out? Cinder interrupted. Crouching beside the couch, Jason felt for the pulse in Cinder's wrist. After a short silence, he let it drop down again. Stress, probably, along with your physical reaction to having the port screen connected to your... Uh, he gestured to her general head area. Computer thing. And you call me squeamish, said Thorn. Cinder squinted. I passed out from stress? That's it? I believe the princess term is fainted, said Thorn. Cinder smacked him. With everything you've been through, said Jason, it's amazing you haven't had a meltdown. Next time you feel lightheaded or are having trouble breathing, tell me before you pass out. The good thing, said Aiko, is that with you unconscious, Cress and I were able to run your full diagnostics. Two fixed connections, a new data cable, some reinstalled software, and good as new. Well, except... My hand tools, I know, Cinder smiled. But that's fine. I went five years without a built-in flashlight. I'll survive now. Yeah, that, but I think there might be some problems with your interface, too. The diagnostics showed a few errors with net connectivity and data transfer. Cinder's smile faded. She'd been dependent on her cyborg brain ever since she could remember, relying on her ability to download information, send comms, monitor news feeds. It was an uncomfortable feeling to be without it, like part of her brain had been erased. I'll just have to make do, she said. I'm alive, and I have two working hands and two working feet. I've been in worse shape before, she glanced from Iko to Cress. Thank you. Cress ducked her head while Iko tossed her braids over one shoulder. Oh, you know, I used to apprentice for this brilliant mechanic in New Beijing. She may have taught me a thing or two. Cinder laughed. Speaking of brilliant mechanics, Iko said, do you think you have time to look at my arm now?